ancient history. I'll read a verse in a little bit that will tell you that your history will be ancient day after tomorrow. But uh, uh, 43 years ago, I went on a spring break retreat to, uh, to Glen Erie in Colorado. Some of you might have been there before um, with, with a, a student ministry from the University of Oklahoma. And, um, and so I'm going to tell you the story about that today, but I can tell you that that week changed my life. And who knows? I don't know what God has for you. I don't know where you are in your journey of faith. Uh, don't know what God has for you this week. But weeks like this change lives. And so we're delighted to be here and, and be a part of it with you. I do want to have my family stand. Uh, Jeremy mentioned them, but this is my wife, Dana, and our daughter, Annie, and her husband, Jonathan. And if Lena was here, you would know it. Uh, if, if you were eating breakfast, you saw Lena. Um, but uh, uh, Annie and Jonathan have been married not quite three years, about two and a half, a little over two and a half. And, uh, and he spent part of his years growing up uh, near here in California. And so he's, uh, tomorrow he's going to get to see some friends that uh, he knew growing, growing up. And, uh, and she'd never, we've never been to this part of California. I've never seen Yosemite, uh, but we will. So <laughs> we're, we're, we're delighted to be here and delighted to be with you and, and uh, uh, as we're around, if we're in the dining hall or walking around, uh, I'll try to introduce myself to you and try to, if you would, introduce yourself to us so we can get to know you. We've had a great time so far. I've met people from Germany and Spain and, uh, let's see, Taiwan and China and all kinds of people so far. Um, on your handout there, does anyone have a handout? Does anyone not have a handout? Okay, everyone's got one. Uh, at the top of your handout is a verse, Psalm 39, 4 through 7. Read that with me. Lord, help me realize how brief my time on earth will be. Help me know that I'm here, but for a moment more. My life is no longer than my hand. My whole lifetime is but a moment to you. Proud man, frail as breath, a shadow, and all his busy rushing ends in nothing. He heaps up riches for someone else to spend. And so, Lord, my only hope is in you. And you can read that paragraph at the top. According to WebMD, if you were born in 1990, and that's kind of the range when a lot of you were born. I was born a little bit before that, <laughs> like 40 years. Uh, but you can expect to live about 75 years. If you're lucky, you might get 85. If you're not lucky, you might live to be 105, okay? Uh, my grandmother lived to be 105. In fact, her, her funeral was on her, what would have been her 106th birthday. And the last time I saw her, she goes, you know, I've just lived too long. And I, I think there's a sense in which we can live too long. But uh, it's a little over 27,000 days that most of us will have. And most of those days will be rather unremarkable. You're going to get up, get cleaned up, have breakfast, go to work, come at home at the end of the day, have dinner, spend a few hours with your family, go to bed and get up the next morning and do the same thing. But a handful of those days will become mileposts in your life. I, I call this your life in snapshots. But there are, there are images in our minds of key moments in our lives that are turning points in our lives. They're, they're mileposts. They're, they're times we say, you know, my life really changed there for, for the better or for the worse. Uh, you might already have a photo album in your mind of some of those snapshots. Maybe your family together when you were a child or happy times when you won a ball game or when you got selected to be a cheerleader or, or sad times when your grandmother died or, or when the truth sunk in that your family had serious problems that would affect your life forever. 
You know, my dad, when I was, get this picture, when I was over 50 years old, one day I was driving with my dad. He passed away a couple of years ago of Alzheimer's. But we were driving, and I said, Dad, you've never talked much about your father. Is, is that a strange question or statement to make when I'm over 50, my dad is, is 80? You've never talked much about your father, my grandfather, who died before I was born. And he says, nope. <laughs> and I thought, I guess if he couldn't say something good, he didn't want to say anything. And so I said, um, was, um, was he an alcoholic? And he says, I don't think so. And so I'm going, well, what else could be? I said, was he violent with you? He goes, yeah. I said, how was that? He goes, oh. Three or four times a year, he'd get drunk and come home and beat mom up and beat me up. Well, that sounds like an alcoholic to me. <clears throat> Dad had such a poor relationship with his father that he left home when he was 14. And, you know, maybe some of you all are work, working way through college. He worked his way through high school and then college. So um, if he'd have taken, uh, if he'd have had a photo album with snapshots of his life when he was 14, some of those wouldn't have been very happy. Uh, but you know what? The rest of his life, there was no one who led a happier life than my father. Uh, and, you know, so we can choose. We can choose what, what the path of our life is going to be like. My dad, as it turned out, <clears throat> went to the University of Oklahoma, met my mother, and the night that he met her, he told her he was going to marry her. Uh, he said, do you want to go on uh, my honeymoon with me to Hawaii? And she just laughed. <laughs> and she deserved to laugh because it was 25 years after they were married before they ever went to Hawaii. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but he finally got her to marry him. And, and, and he came from a very unsettled family. She came from a very settled family. And my dad became the leader of her family. And, and so... Uh, you know, I don't know what your life is, is like up to this point. Really don't know where you are as far as your uh, journey of faith. Uh, some of you may be pretty far down the road. Some others may be like I was 43 years ago and kind of not know where you are. And so we'll talk about that today. But, uh, but the message is, in a very large sense, we can choose what's in that photo album with those snapshots of our lives. Um, during your college years, likely, in all likelihood, you're going to be seeking the answers for three basic questions in life. Um, what is my passion in life? What is my purpose in life? And who will be my partner in life? You know, what is my passion in life? Um, God created each one of us with a special set of ability, abilities and interests. Uh, we are intentional creations. I was talking to Henning this morning, and if you've not met Henning, wave your hand, Henning. Uh, Henning from Germany, been a believer two years. Before he's a believer, Henning, if I got it right this morning, you said, well, you know, we just kind of thought we were like animals. Just kind of, we live, we die, no big deal. You know, well, that is not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God is not a disinterested bystander. He said, it says in Psalm 139, 16, you saw me before I was born and catch this, scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. Did you get that? Scheduled each day of my life. God cares about the details of our lives. It says, every day was recorded in your book. He is not a disinterested bystander. He cares about the details in our lives. 
and works to help us accomplish His purposes. Psalm 32, 8 says, I will instruct you, says the Lord, and guide you along the best pathway for your life. It's almost like we're walking down this pathway and, and God nudges us to the left and he, then He closes His door there and we move to the right and, and He is guiding us along the pathway. It says, I will advise you and watch your progress. God knows you're here this week. He opens doors and closes doors. When I, when I got out of OU in 1972, my brother and I bought uh, our dad's business. Um, and dad had a business as a wholesale business. He bought from the manufacturers and sold to retailers. At that time, his only customer really was the Army and Air Force Exchange Service, the, the stores on the military installations around the country. Well, the military quit buying from guys like us after a few months, and uh, they just kind of cut out the middleman. And so within less than a year and a half, we lost all of our business. We went from 30 employees down to four. And just imagine, I, I was 21, 22 years old. Imagine calling in men who've worked for your father for 10 years. They have a family. They're 40 years old. They, they do good work. And you say, I don't have a job for you. And we had to cut from 30 employees down to four, and it's tough. But Good things started happening, and, and over a period of about three years, we grew the business back to where Dad had had it, and uh, we thought we were pretty good. And one day, a guy walked in, in our office, and he said, you all need to sell these Afro hair products. And, um, and back in the 70s and 80s, it was a big deal, Afro sheen, uh, things, all kinds of products that, that blacks used on their hair and skin. And being a wise businessman, I ran him out and said, I don't want to do that. And he went across town and came back that same day and he said, uh, uh, you know, God opens and closes. He didn't say God opens and closes doors, but I'm saying God opens and closes doors and sometimes God's got to shove us through them, okay? <laughs> and uh, I'd run this guy off. The guy comes back and says, hey, I, I wrote a $4,500 in one store on the other side of town. You know, you ought, to, you ought to get in this business. And I said, tell me about it. And... <clears throat> By then, my, our younger brother had come into the business, and over the next few years, three white brothers from Oklahoma became the largest distributors of Afro hair products in America. <laughs> uh, we, we, you know, if Michael Jordan had gone into a Walmart to buy something for his hair, he bought it from us, you know. We had every Walmart in America back in the uh, 80s. Uh, and every Eckerd drug, CVS today was Eckerd drug then, every, CVS, every Eckerd drug in America. We had about half of the Kmarts and half of the Targets and, and uh, had people living in L.A. and Chicago and Philadelphia and Miami and everywhere in between. Uh, but it's because God opens doors. And so I have, a, I have a motto, never close the door without looking through it. You know, if God opens the door, never close the door without looking through it. Um, In the, uh, the mid-'80s, I, I, I ran for our local school board, um, <clears throat> really just out of a sense of, gee whiz, a lot of my friends were taking their kids out of public schools and putting them in private schools, and I thought, before you leave, why don't you try to do something about it? And so I ran for the, the school board in, in the Putnam City District. It's a large suburban district in northwest Oklahoma City. Served about eight years on the school board, enjoyed it. Um, uh, and then a few years after I got off the school board, one day I was sitting in my office and a lady called me and she says, I've been praying about the mayor's race and your name keeps coming to mind and I'm calling to ask you to, to run for mayor. This would be mayor of Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City at the time was about the 27th largest city in the United States. Um, 
The metro area is about a million and a quarter. And uh, we did a poll, and 90% of the people had never heard of me. And 10 weeks later, I was mayor. And so God opens doors. It, it, I was in the right place at the right time with the right message. And, and, uh, and this lady was praying about it, and God put her on my heart. So I served six years as mayor, had a, really had a fabulous run as mayor. Uh, Oklahoma City is a city, I think, somewhat similar to Sacramento um, in size. Um, but uh, we had really been in the doldrums for decades. And my predecessor in the mayor's office had gotten a one-penny sales tax passed. And, and we, built, we built the sports arena downtown where anyone ever heard of Kevin Durant? Okay. <laughs> Kevin Durant plays in my town, okay? Uh, and he plays in the building that I built. When, when I ran for mayor, the big issue in that campaign in 1998 was, do we build a sports arena or not? Because we didn't have a team, and we didn't have enough money. And so my opponent was saying, let's put it on hold. And I said, no, we said we we're going to build it. Let's build it, even if we have to raise more money. And so shortly after I got elected, we raised we extended a sales tax for six months and got 30 million bucks extra to build that arena and uh, to finish the funding of the arena. And because of that, years later, we got the team that's now the Oklahoma City Thunder. And Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, we were in the NBA Finals last year. And uh, so Oklahoma City has really been on a roll. And it was a lot of fun to be mayor for those six years. I left uh, the mayor's office and got, had been reelected. In the middle of my second term, I left the mayor's office uh, to run for United States Senate in 2004, lost in the Republican primary, and, and I didn't do it small, I, I lost big. <laughs> to a guy named Tom Coburn, he's the senator today, and, um, um, and so now we're back in the real estate development business and quite, quite active in that. Um, so I've seen God open and close doors. Uh, Dan will tell you, that the best thing that ever happened to the Humphreys family is losing that Senate race. Right, Dana? You know, I think Annie would say that. Um, you know, Tom Coburn is in Washington tonight uh, fighting a hopeless battle, and I'm here with you. And I'd rather be with you than with Obama. <laughs> he, he did have President... He, Coburn had dinner with the president last week. He was one of those senators the president invited for dinner. But the point is, God is not a disinterested bystander. He opens doors. He closes doors. Um, he advises us and watches our progress. We're unique creatures. You know, there's some ways in which we resemble our parents and siblings, but in other ways, we're quite different. Uh, I'm one of five siblings. Uh, two have passed away now out of the five. Uh, just, to, you know, uh, satisfy your curiosity, I'm 62, okay? <laughs> Um, but I'm one of three brothers, two sisters. Uh, my, my younger brother, Craig, is a, uh, a golf expert. He is the golf expert in the state of Oklahoma. He has broadcast um, the Masters either to Oklahoma uh, outlets or on Masters radio for the last 25-plus years. He is a sports fanatic. I got to play golf um, a little over 10 years ago with Tom Watson, a great golfer of my age. And after the round in the locker room, he said, well, Mr. Mayor, it's obvious that people are getting their money's worth on you because you're, you're sure not spending much time on the golf course. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was such a bad golfer, I gave up the game, okay? But Craig, Craig loves golf. Um, 
My brother Kent uh, died in January. He had, he had a disease he'd fought with for a long time, and he passed away in January. Kent's story is interesting. I, I, this is under what is my passion in life. Kent went to the University of Oklahoma and enrolled in a pre-ministry course in the early 60s. And um, in, in his freshman year, he was doing so poorly at Hebrew and Greek. He had D's and F's in Hebrew, Hebrew and Greek that we woke up one morning about 6 o'clock and our dad was out. This is back, back in those days, every family had the telephone. It was on a stand in the hallway and you'd go out to talk on the telephone. Does anybody remember this? The <laughs> telephone. Okay, I can see who's over 50 here, okay? <laughs> Cell phones did not exist. The internet did not exist. So at 6, 6 o'clock, 6.15 one morning, my dad had gotten Kent's grades the night before. And he woke Kent up at 6 o'clock in the morning with what we call the pump gas speech. Now, you can't even pump gas anymore. But back in those days, today it would be the McDonald's speech. Back in those days, if you couldn't do anything else, you could always get a job pumping gas, okay? Well, today is, is how do you want your fries at McDonald's, you know, it's that, that's that kind of a job. Um, and so Kent was telling, Dad was telling Kent, if you don't get these grades up, I'm finished with you and you can pump gas for all I care. You can go work at McDonald's for all I care. Well, Kent, this is amazing, Neil. Kent, Neil Bar uh, Max Barnett was not at OU at that time. This is 1965. And, uh, but Max was a friend of the family, so my dad calls Max and says, would you come up here and talk to Kent because he's really struggling. Max comes up, spends a day with Kent, and at the end of the day, Max said, you know, Kent, your parents have called you into the ministry and your pastor has called you into the ministry, but God has not. You're a businessman. <laughs> and Max gave Kent permission to quit the pre-ministry course of study and to enroll in the business school, and he started making A's. He got rid of Hebrew and Greek and started making A's. And, and Kent, when we had his funeral in early February, it was a celebration of a guy who had spent uh, 40 years in the business world and had a worldwide ministry and impact. And 1,500 people showed up at his funeral. Brett Yon was there from Nebraska. So... <clears throat> What is my passion in life? That is not what is my vocation in life. Your passion can be, I want to minister to people, and you earn your living selling Afrosheen. Okay? You earn your living as a botanist, as a scientist, as, as an engineer, as a lawyer. I think there are some Christian lawyers. Yeah, yeah, as a lawyer. <laughs> so, but what is my passion? What makes me tick? You know, I, I decided I, I was member, a member of one of the best golf clubs in Oklahoma City, and it was August, and I realized I had not been to the golf course this year. Okay? And I'm paying 450 bucks a month and all that, and I hadn't been out there this year, and I decided, you know what? I can work. I have a choice of what I do with my time. I can work. I could spend time with my family. I could go fly an airplane. I could play golf, and golf would finish fourth in that list. I said, it's not that I didn't want to do it. I just didn't want to do it very much, and I didn't want to do it as much as work. I didn't want to do it. I'd, re I'd far rather go chase Lena around. Uh, this morning, uh, Lena came to see me, and Martha was sitting at our table, and after Lena left, Martha says, Kirk, you have banana all over your sweater. <laughs> you know, but I'd rather do that than go play golf. So <clears throat> what is my passion? When Annie was at OU... 
she had, and I don't want to embarrass her, but she had four or five majors. She was good at all of them. I mean, she enrolled in one called architectural engineering. You've got, it's like an architecture degree and an engineering degree. And she loved it because when guys said, what is your major? She said, architectural engineering, instead of saying, oh, they said, oh, you know, this girl might have a brain, you know. <clears throat> but it's pretty common when we go to college, we don't quite know what we want to do in life. And so we're exposed to a broad field of studies. And somewhere in there, something clicks and we say, you know what? I really like this. This is really fun. And when you find something that you're passionate about, you can do it every day the rest of your life for free and love it. If they pay you, that's even better. What is my passion in life? And the second question we need to wrestle with when we're in college is, what is my purpose in life? <clears throat> I grew up in a home where my parents were committed Christians. My dad, after, after his life changed and he started walking with God, he, he had a quiet time every day and uh, really lived his faith. And I grew up in the Baptist church, and back in those days in the Baptist church, when you were nine years old, one thing you did is walk down an aisle and get baptized. That's just part of the program. And so I did that. Um, but I was really a nominal Christian in high school. You know, I, it's kind of like I had one foot in the church and one foot in the world. And I wasn't happy in either place. Went to OU and um, was really not attracted by the message of the church. The message I got from the church was, you know what, uh, you need, you're saved to serve. And so you, you need to be working and you need to be, go out sharing your faith with people. And it just all seemed very uncomfortable with me. And um, first year and a half at OU, I still tried to live in, in both worlds. First Kings 18, 21, Elijah says, how long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Make up your minds, in other words. And I don't know where you are right now, but that's where I was this week in 1970. Kind of limping with two different opinions. I'd gotten to know a guy named James Redeker at OU, and uh, he had a couple of characteristics I really liked. One is he was a pretty cool guy, and secondly, his, he had a wife that cooked well. And so uh, they lived in a little apartment there in Norman, and two, three days a week, I'd happen to wind up at their home at dinner time, and she'd feed me. And, um, and I never fit into the mold at, at uh, the Baptist student ministry there at OU. I didn't you know, I wasn't going to make their formations. But Redeker understood that, and he kind, of, uh, he kind of met me on my turf, if I can put it that way. Um, we would be driving around running errands, and he would say, hey, I'm, I'm working on this memory verse. Can you help me? And so I would be checking his verses, but he was really working on me, wasn't he? But I didn't know that. Um, so a spring break of 1970, we go on this retreat to, uh, to Glen Erie in Colorado Springs. And the last day, what tomorrow will be, they gave us uh, an hour and a half or two hours. Said, go find a quiet spot by yourself and see what God's saying to you from this week. And so I go up on a hillside there and looking over Glen Erie. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, this stuff is either true or it's not. E either the Bible is God's word or it's not. If, if the Bible is not God's word then why waste my time on it? But if it is, it ought to direct my life. Either Jesus is who he said he is or he's not. You know, indeed, Jesus did not say he was a good prophet and a good teacher, did he? He said he was God and he said he was the only way to God. 
No man comes to the Father but by me. It's either true or it's not. And if that's not true, then folks, we might as well, might as well all go home, right? But if it is true, what does that mean to us? And for me, sitting on that hillside in 1970, it meant, you know what? If there is a God, and I believe there is, and if, if the Bible is His Word to me, and I believe it is, and if Jesus is who He said He is, the Son of God, the only way to God, salvation is only through faith in Him, then th those things ought to be the most important thing in my life. And I told someone this morning, I came back from, from that retreat, and I would really encourage you to do this. I came back from that retreat, and I, at that time, we didn't have word processing or computers, but I typed out on a little slip of paper my impressions from that week. Four or five things. And it's now brown and yellowed with age, and I still have it. Do you think 43 years from now, you'll be able to look and see what God said to you this week? I hope so. I hope so. So anyway, and so I, I at the time, I thought I rededicated my life. I, I, that uh, next... Um, Next summer, uh, there was a gal that had gone to my high school named Dalta Eads. She's now Dalta Morris. And uh, she had gone to my high school, so I went through junior high and high school with her. And she was an intern in our church. And after she'd been, been around me a little time, she said, you know, you're different. What's happened to you? And I said, oh, I rededicated my life. And what floored me is her next statement. She goes, really? I didn't know you were a Christian. Well, you know what? I wasn't. It took me a long time to realize that you can't rededicate something that's never been dedicated. <laughs> <clears throat> and the best way, and here's how I came to realize it. 20 years later, we had a guy come speak at our church, and he talked on John 3, 16, and where Jesus said, if, any, if anyone believes in me, he has eternal life. And that guy said, that word believe, it means to put all your weight on Christ. And it's, it's almost like you're sitting on a chair, and you rock back on the two back legs, and you're totally balanced on that, and all your weight's on those two legs. And I, we're, I'm driving home that night, and I said to Dana, I said, you know what? I've never heard it explained like that, and I never put all my weight on Jesus Christ until I was a sophomore in college. And I thought she'd say, oh, that's wonderful. And she goes, well, really, then you need to go get baptized. Because we believe that baptism is for believers, and if you're not a believer, you didn't get baptized, you just got wet. <laughs> And I thought, and I struggled with this for months. I thought, I can't do that. I've been chairman of the deacons. I, I've, been, I've been chairman of the Baptist Sunday School Board, at, you know, in headquarters in Nashville. I can't do that. But after six months, I did. I walked down to the front, and I said, Pastor, I said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm coming to get baptized. And I explained why. And I got baptized. And about a half a dozen, half a dozen other adults in our church did the same thing after that because they realized that they had never been baptized since they'd really been a believer. So, Dalton said, uh, yeah, I didn't know you were a Christian. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? He is a new creation. A totally different animal. Henning, uh, a totally different animal. Not just an animal, a totally different animal. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I'm trying to read my notes here. Yeah. Um, so what's my purpose in life? And for me, my purpose in life came from a verse in Philippians 
chapter 3, verse 10. Paul in Philippians 3 has gone through this litany of things that were his strong points. He said, you know, as to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. Pretty strong. I can't make that statement. Blameless as to righteousness under the law. He said, I'm a Pharisee. I, I, any, any way you want to measure success, I can, I can top the list. He says, but I counted all that as worth nothing compared to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He said he suffered the loss of all that. And in verse 10 he says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God. And then verse 10, that I may know him. He said, I'm, I'm going to sacrifice all that so that I can know Jesus Christ. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering becoming like him in his death. He said, you know what? I'm willing to give up everything in life in order that I can know Jesus Christ. And you know what? If, if I know Jesus Christ and I experience in my life the power that raised him, that's pretty strong power, isn't it? The power that raised him from the dead. Would you like to have that power in your life? You know, what, what are you struggling, what, what are you worrying about right now? Don't tell me. But you may be worrying about a course or a professor or a car payment or, or, or how you're going to pay for school next year. What are you worrying about? And I wonder if that problem's too big for God. I wonder which is harder, dealing with that professor or raising Jesus from the dead? <laughs> you know, Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and what? The power of his resurrection. Wouldn't you like to know that in your life every day? And so that became my purpose in life. Now, if I know Jesus Christ and I experience his power and I'm becoming like him, I am going to do a lot of the things the church wants me to do that used to frustrate me. I am going to share my faith. I am going to make the formations on a fairly regular basis. I am going to give. I'm going to do all those things. But I'm going to do that because that's Jesus flowing out of me, not because I feel compelled to do it. So it totally changes things. What's my passion in life? What's my purpose in life? And finally, who will be my partner in life? Going back to the spring of 1970, I didn't know it. Um, but at the same time that God was dealing with me, he was dealing with a young girl that lived about an hour up the road in, in a little town called Stroud, Oklahoma. I was a sophomore in college. Dana was a senior in high school. And uh, when we came back from that retreat, a few weeks later, I went to a one-day navigator conference in Oklahoma City out at a retreat center. And a friend of mine was a youth minister, and he brought his youth group from Stroud. And there was a really cute little girl with short hair um, that I was introduced to, and that was Dana. And... Uh, we wound up in the same workshop. <clears throat> I really think she was pursuing me, guys. i got to tell you that. <clears throat> we wound up in the same workshop, and her pen quit working, and she was shaking it. And so I said, here, you can have a pen. Honestly, she remembers that. I don't. <laughs> and about, uh, about six months later, a friend uh, called me and said, hey, would you like to go out with Dana Kircher? And I was at OU in Norman, and she was at Oklahoma Baptist University, where Neil and Melinda went. In Shawnee, it's about 45 miles away. And would you like to go out with Dana Kircher? And I said, sure. And um, I didn't know she had put him up to it. But um, <laughs> we started dating, and, and uh, about a year and a half later, got married. 
and if I don't know where you are, if you're in a courtship, it can be bumpy. Ours was. I broke up once just to get some room, and I've never heard the end of it. <laughs> um, but we got married. Uh, and then after we got married, um, I won't go into all the details, but just say that Dana really encouraged me to work on my walk with, with Christ. Um, I think that, that at some point she thought I was not measuring up. And the same week that she made that comment to me, um, uh, we'd been married just a few months. A few days later, our Sunday school teacher, uh, leader in our Sunday school department, calls me and says, hey, I'm starting a Bible study. You want to be in it? And I, I thought she'd put him up to it. I guess God did because she denies it. <laughs> and so a guy named Jim Kennedy, I started meeting with him in a Bible study. And, and uh, that was, you know, I was 22 at the time. Okay. Met with him for years. After that, uh, when he left, God, got a, God brought a guy named John Crawford into Oklahoma City who was an old navigator and uh, had been on the mission field in New Zealand for 10 years. And then for the next five years or so, I met on a regular basis with John Crawford. Over the years, God has brought a series of mentors into my life, and I've, I've learned something from all of them and uh, uh, been greatly helped. Where we are now, um, we're at a different stage of life. Um, I, I can tell you looking back, on, I'm looking back on the next 43 years that you're going to experience. And it will take about that long. There's ways in which it seems a long time ago, but there's ways in which it seems not very long ago. It goes pretty quickly. Um, you'll be busy. Uh, I, I will tell you, even though I don't know your situation, it's going to be a long time before you have as much free time as you have today. You'll not, you, right now you think I'm crazy? Believe me later. Hear me now, believe me later. <laughs> uh, and it'll probably be a long time before you have as much disposable cash as you have today. And you think I'm goofy. But wait until you get a wife and kids and, you know, diapers. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, we're at the stage of life now where we're pouring our life into our kids and our grandkids. Um, most of our married life, we've uh, been involved with working with young couples. We're not right now. We're kind of in between. So maybe God will bring that into our life again. Um, but it, it's been a, a very fruitful partnership together with Dana, and, and I've been blessed by that. Um, Annie went to OU, and then she went to Baylor for two years. And uh, when Annie was getting ready to graduate from Baylor, I could sense that Dana was really feeling some tension about Annie has not found the guy yet, you know, to marry. And, uh, <clears throat> and I just said, hey, look, you know, God's in control. That, don't raise your hand. Girls, do you ever worry about that? You know, <laughs> do you ever feel any pressure on that? Or guys, God's in control. You know, he has a guy for her. <clears throat> and so, this is three years ago. Uh, a, fr a friend of ours encouraged Annie to buy a home uh, at Christmas time before she graduated. And Oklahoma City is about four and a half hours from Waco, where Baylor is. And so he thought, you know, you can buy a home and kind of get it settled for when you move back home after school. And that last semester of her senior year at Baylor, Annie was home almost every weekend. That 
you know, four and a half hour drive, I had made the mistake of saying, honey, anytime you want to come home, I'll buy your gas because we'd love to see you. So I bought a lot of gas that last semester. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, I thought, well, gee whiz, I guess she's fixing up the house. But then one day I went over to the house and it looked a mess. I couldn't figure out what was going on. And so about June, she's graduated. About June, Dana comes to me and says, Jonathan wants to come talk to you about dating Annie. Well, Jonathan was a pastor in the church she'd been going to. And she was coming home to be with this church bunch. But I think that she and Jonathan were doing some kind of a mating dance where they circle or something. I don't know what it is. <clears throat> they weren't dating, but they were hanging out, you know. And, um, and so uh, Jonathan wants to come talk to you. Um, and, um, and I had met Jonathan. I was impressed with Jonathan. And so I, I said, well, sure, that's, that's nice. He wants to come talk to me and get permission to date my daughter. So I met with him and gave him permission. And 10 days later, I hear that Annie's shopping for wedding dresses. <laughs> and I said, time out. I, you know, we got to talk about this because I did not agree to that. <clears throat> and so we had a dinner and I said, what's your relationship? I, you know, and they go, well, we want to get married. And Jonathan's story is complicated. He was eight years older and, and uh, uh, real briefly, he'd been married uh, his wife had died in a tragic accident. He'd come through a period of uh, traumatic period dealing with that. He had not dated anyone since his wife's death until Annie. So he was, he was a man with more maturity. Uh, I'd heard him speak numerous times. He was a godly man. This afternoon, you have a choice to go hear Jonathan speak on prayer or to hear me speak. And I encourage you to go hear Jonathan speak. And I'm not joking. He's a godly man. He's a, he's a good teacher. So he wanted to date my daughter, and now they wanted to get married. This was mid-June. On the 26th of July, I'm telling you this so you know God's working on your behalf, okay? <laughs> on the 26th of July, Dana says, Dana's surfing the web, and she's, she calls Annie. She says, Annie? Check out this website, 100 Layer Cake. And uh, you can do a surprise wedding. And you're going to be taking these mission trips to Haiti and stuff. Wouldn't you rather be married? And Annie goes, well, yeah. And Dana goes, well, you can do it. And <clears throat> 26th of July, and 19 days later, we had a surprise wedding. And we invited all the friends and family, and they thought it was a wedding, a, an engagement reception. And we hired out the best hotel in town, and we had a band, and... and and we got there, and they're all gathered, and we told them there was going to be a surprise. We're going to surprise the couple at 7. Well, the, the surprise was on them instead of the couple. <clears throat> and a guy says, well, now, I have an announcement to make. The engagement party has been called off. And everyone goes, oh. He goes, we're going to have a wedding instead. And everyone starts <laughs> jumping up and down. <clears throat> and so... Um, the, uh, the fruit of that union is running around this, these grounds right now, little Lena. Uh, but, you know, girls, would, you, would your dad let you marry some guy that you'd only known a few months, you'd been dating only a few weeks, you know? But I, we felt total peace about it. We've never felt anything but peace about it, and God has blessed it. They, they, Jonathan's pastor of a church. It's a, it's a downtown 
what I'd call a 20-something church in Oklahoma City. That might communicate to you, but it's very untraditional. They meet in the auditorium of an oil company downtown. Uh, they're having a very fruitful ministry uh, in the heart of downtown Oklahoma City. God's blessing them. Who will be my partner in life? My, my message, my moral of that story is trust God. Trust, you know, do you trust God for something as important as that? Well, heaven's sakes, if you trust him with your soul for eternity, you ought to be able to trust him with that. We ought to be able to trust God with every area of our life. We ought to be able to trust God when we're making a sales call. We ought to be able to trust God when we're making a business decision. We ought to be able to trust God when, we're, when our hearts are broken and we don't know what to do about our kids. We ought to be able to trust God when we have financial problems. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares about you. And so the big deal in life is, <clears throat> am I willing to trust God? You know, that retreat in 1970, there's a, there's a guy in Oklahoma City who's a, a, a surgeon named Chip McWilliams. Well, we were classmates at OU. And on that, that day in 1970, that week in 1970, he was, um, one day we heard a speaker, and, and the speaker said, now, if you don't do anything before you go to bed at night, memorize this verse, Philippians 4.19, which says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19. My God will supply every need of yours. And so we heard that speaker, and that afternoon Chip says, Well, I guess we better work on that verse. And I thought, What verse? I'd forgotten about it. <laughs> and so that was the first verse I'd ever memorized that was not under coercion. My dad, my dad used to make me memorize verses when I'd act up. If I said bad words, I had to memorize verses on speech, you know, and that kind of stuff. <laughs> but the first verse I ever voluntarily memorized was in the spring of 1970, Philippians 4.19. My God will supply every need of yours. And so that's my message to you. God's created you with certain abilities, certain passions. You know, you're good at certain stuff. Find out what those things are and do them. That's why he made you. I would rather do what God has created me to do and make starvation wages than to do something I was not created to do and make a million dollars a year. Because you'll be happy. You'll be fulfilled and you'll, you'll be doing what God made you to do. What he created you for. There's nothing better than finding out what God made you for and doing that. So what's my passion? And what's my purpose in life? You know, when my brother died two months ago, we could all say he accomplished what God had for him to do. No doubt about it. A very intentional life. And I hope that when your life is up and when my life is up, that God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, we're not really trying to please those 1,500 people who show up, but uh, it's great if you can. It's even better if you please God. So what's my passion? What's my purpose? And then who's my partner? And trust God for all those things, and he will deliver. Let me pray for us. Lord, I, I thank you that you created us as uh, unique individuals. You gave us each unique gifts. 
And we each have a unique calling, a unique purpose for being here. And Lord, I'd love nothing better than for every uh, young man, every young woman here in this room to find out what, what it is you put them here to be and to do. And to live right in the middle of that. And I'd love it if, if, if every one of us in this room had a clear picture of your purpose for us. And that when our life's over, whether that's a long time from now or whether it's a short time, we will have lived every day in the middle of your purpose for us. And Father, I, we all acknowledge that finding the partner that you have for us is, uh, is our heart's desire. I thank you for Dana. I thank you that you brought Jonathan and Annie together. And uh, we just acknowledge that two are much stronger than one. And so um, I know that's the longing of a lot of hearts in this room to find the partner that you have for them. And we just trust you to work in your ways to do that and ask you to give us the strength and the wisdom to wait until you provide. In Jesus' name, amen.